0: This episode is sponsored by Podgo. We use Podgo to monetize all of our podcasts and get paid within twenty four hours. So if you're a podcast want to get paid, be sure to check out Podgo. That's p o d g o dot c o. That's Podgo dot c o. And be sure to enter our name in the "How did you hear about Podgo?" section of the application. See you guys in the episode.
1: The language of the universe.
0: But I don't understand it.
1: Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Math and Physics Podcast. I'm your host, Parker.
0: And I'm Ray, and we welcome you to episode number 62. Where today we have our very first reoccurring guest on the podcast here, Dr. Pekka Sinervo. So for those that remember episode number four, he was our very first guest on the math and physics podcast. So thank you for that. And uh, yeah, so we spoke originally about particle physics. He is a particle physicist and was my professor for one of my courses at U of T. That's how we got to know each other. And I think I think it just continued from there. And we discovered some really crazy things that you have done in your life in that episode. So definitely go check it out. There's going to be a big difference in quality, though, for sure, for sure. But before we get into the actual nitty gritty, let's get into some news on the podcast.
1: Yes. Yes. So now we have reached one hundred and twenty three thousand downloads. So thank you so much, everybody, for listening to the podcast and on Spotify we are now at almost 8600 followers and on YouTube almost 600 so you know we're getting close to 10000 total yep. followers that's the big Maybe, if you're listening to the podcast right now make sure to follow the podcast and leave a comment to possibly be featured for comment of the week right yeah comment of the week also i do want to
0: mention the 100k QA is ready and it's going to be up on YouTube by this week so the week that this episode comes out, we should be also just posting the 100k Q&A on the side. So that's going to be cool. So for the comment of the week, we have Arian Malik. Really nice comment, really long too. I'm going to kind of summarize it. Basically, he starts by saying, how do you not have more viewers? So we love to hear that. He was in a liberal arts program and there was a lot of the rote learning and stuff like that. And I'm just gonna summarize the ending. The way you guys talk about math and physics it made me interested in it again. Keep doing this podcast. I hope you guys get the game you deserve. Enough cringing. Back to science. So thank you, Arian. Uh, thank you for that comment. And yeah, that's that's that that can kick off the podcast by starting with we've already got to know a lot about you, Doctor Sinervo. So let's 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 do, do, a, do a little bit for the audience. Let's ask you the best advice. That you could give a prospective student in the math and physics program, just advice that you've received, advice that you would want to maybe, you know, depart to Uh, someone.
2: I'd say actually go and both talk to your fellow students and get to know your professors. Okay. uh, This is, you know, math and physics is uh, seen as a very sort of a technical, mathematically oriented program, Uh, and. it's From that perspective, it comes across as kind of something internal, totally. You mm-hmm. just are absorbing stuff and trying to make sense of it. But in fact, the real, uh, uh, the real benefits and virtue of that program is that you actually are with a whole bunch of other folk who actually think and feel the same mm-hmm. way you do mm-hmm. about math and about physics. And it just, it's really, really important to get to know them and to hear what their stories are
0: yeah and one I'm really sorry. important thing about just you know math and or like science in general i think is when you study by yourself or just work on anything by yourself like there's a significant level of difficulty to that but when you realize that everyone around you is in the same boat especially like when you find people in that same boat like you know similar interests and stuff like that as you very well said you know talk to like fellows and i, I, I guess you're talking also about like teaching assistants like anyone that can you know assist you with your work can truly open your mind up simply because of the advantage of, you know, communication, communication in science is a big, big plus, you know, it Mm -hmm. definitely helped, helped a lot of scientists.
1: And in in first year, I remember hearing from the upper years, they always say, go to office hours, you know, go to office hours, ask your questions. Even if you don't have any questions, just listen to other people's questions and get to know your professors and people in your program. And, I didn't necessarily listen to that advice so much in first year, but yeah. I did actually improve like second year. I would go to those online office hours. It was more convenient, but I yeah. also realized how important they actually are. And uh, yeah, definitely great advice. Also, we have yeah. this uh, we have
0: this forum on, or at least for U of T, and I'm, I'm assuming a lot of other universities have it as well. It's called Piazza, where basically like, you, I mean, obviously you know it, but for the audience out there, Uh, It's basically a forum where you can where students can, you know, post question answers like just like just an idea like that is so is so fundamentally awesome for a scientist because that is how you help each other. You know, communication and collaboration is the name of the game, especially in a game like this. It is.
2: And uh, I think the other thing that actually what happens when you get to know your professor is that other opportunities open up. So, I'm often asked in, by second or third year students, how can I get involved in a research project? Mm-hmm. What are the ways that this might actually be possible? And so that opens up a conversation and discussion about what the strategies would be, what are the opportunities that you otherwise would not necessarily have actually uncovered or run into.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Big part there, yeah. And yeah, actually, a funny thing about Piazza is mm-hmm. that in first year, Rehan and I, we do a lot of our work together and we actually didn't use Piazza the entire year. Not Until <laughs> the actual, the final <laughs> exam for our calculus class. <laughs> the final exam um, was posted and it's like, oh, any questions you have, go ask on Piazza. So we're like, oh, let's go check it out. <laughs> and then we see like, we see like problem set one through nine, like all of these, all of these <laughs> questions being asked and answered and we're like, how have we not... <laughs> Heard of this the entire year, and then we definitely <laughs> took advantage of that second year. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's again collaboration. Yeah,
2: it is, and I follow Piazza when I'm teaching a course uh, mm-hmm. pretty uh, actively because there are questions that come up, and uh, and it's a great way of augmenting you know, office hours and what happened mm-hmm. in lectures you really are able to then elaborate and, and actually focus on the stuff that students themselves
0: are actually interested in or asking as mm-hmm. opposed to what you think is interesting. Mm-hmm. The, uh... Also on like a forum page or on like a page like Piazza, like again, we're just giving Piazza as an example because we're used to it, but like any kind of forum page like this, you see the advantage of, you know, very specific questions and, you know, trying to really dig deep into, into some understanding of something. Like in class, Not once have I heard any question that like, like the level of questions that I see on a forum page like Piazza. They're very general questions. Oh, how does this work? How does it very general? But on, on a, on a page like that, where you can collaborate, you go so deep into it that you yourself as the student want to understand so much more. So just that ability to talk to other people that obviously know a lot more than you like teachers and teaching assistants, like gives you that opportunity, as you very well said, you know, to, to expand your horizons truly truly does so maybe we can now get into the actual matter of this podcast and start <laughs> talking about matter so how and we were talking about this before we started uh this conversation uh, or this the, the recording but how did we as human beings think about the idea of matter that things around us are you know contain are basically matter these fundamental particles are in these objects i mean i'm rambling but basically how do we think right. about it
2: well so you know the, i think that that conversation or that discussion or question has been there for a long long time the uh, probably uh, as early as uh, the uh, homo sapiens became actually conscious of sort of the world around them and trying to and start asking questions uh, there is a sort of a, a change in level of consciousness that occurred oh, probably 50 to 100,000 years ago that uh, that moved uh, the uh, the species from where it was to where it is today. The uh, but the earliest sort of recorded discussions around what matter was really go back to the Greeks. The uh, so. uh, You actually have, in fact, uh, the very first uh, recorded discussion about whether matter might be made of something smaller, uh, particles, uh, that was actually by Democritus. uh, And he and his school that he had actually developed around him, you know, the acolytes, uh, uh, they actually talked about what could actually be the nature of matter. uh, Is it made out of particles? That's actually where the term atom came from. Uh, but it was simply a philosophical conversation the, uh, in the sense that they didn't really know what that actually really led to. The, uh, they didn't have a good sense of how large these particles might be. Uh, and, and there was no way of really validating that particular idea. So you have to go fast forward then to uh, now the, uh, the, around the 16th century. uh, When, in fact, you had now starting to have, again, what was recorded uh, sort of more, not just discussion now, but actually investigations of the nature of matter, the nature of gases, uh, thermodynamics developed, uh, what we learned about, uh, you know, the way ideal gases work. You know, the pressure, times volume equals the uh, num- the amount of material or number of moles times temperature. That the uh, those actually all started to develop, and with that then developed this sort of a an idea that at a microscopic level, uh, one actually t- had the uh, idea of particles. The uh, which you know th- was in fact controversial and was controversial already even into the 19th century. There were people who Actually disagreed with the idea of atoms really being uh, sort of fundamental, the and a fundamental description. Uh, the uh, but by the time of the by the turn of the 20th century, there were in fact a couple of different, very specific models for what matter might actually be made up of. That uh, atoms existed. The, uh, that was starting to become a real assing uh, within the uh, people sort of thinking about how the world works. The, uh, but there were still a, a lot of uncertainty as to what exactly atoms looked like. So uh, it was uh, the experiments by Lord Rutherford back around 1909, which, uh, you know, the famous experiment where he took alpha particles, didn't know what alpha mm-hmm. particles were, but they were a form of radiation, plowed them into the gold foil, and watched how they bounced off. And occasionally, they bounced off at very high angle, which actually led to the hypothesis that the atom had a very hard core, we now call a nucleus, and then surrounding it, the other particles that eventually were quickly identified as uh, electrons. Because
0: I always wondered, as you just said, as you very well just said, I've always wondered how he knew those were alpha particles, because that was the entire experiment. The entire experiment was to see if these things are made up of smaller things. So how could he know that that was an alpha so technically he didn't right that was just what we know now it's just well, some form of radiation actually,
2: at at that point they had already been able to identify three different kinds of radiation okay there were alpha radiation beta radiation and gamma radiation they were all forms of radiation that were associated with the decay of radioactive materials they all seemed to be related to it and the uh, and the the characterization of what an alpha particle, a beta, and a gamma particle were, had been done. We knew what the sort of properties they had, but we didn't know what they were. Mm-hmm. We didn't know, for example, that an alpha particle with a helium nucleus. We didn't know that a beta particle with an electron, or that a gamma particle was a, a photon. In fact, we didn't know they were particles, We actually knew they were radiation. And radiation at the time was, you know, something radiated. You know, there was (laughs) something actually moving. And, okay, you know, so it was mysterious. It was mysterious.
1: I never even thought of that. That's pretty crazy. I wanted to comment on the word Adam itself. And I think I I read this somewhere, I forget where, but Adam means indivisible, right? And so it's this really philosophical question where you have like a piece of wood, for example, and you say, okay, if I cut it in half and I cut it in half and again and again and again, when will I get to this point where I have something that is indivisible? You can't cut it in half any further. And that's where the word Adam comes from yeah i mean yeah. that's yeah i mean but that's not really true now right yeah <laughs> now we know that's not yeah. really,
0: no. No, no. No.
2: we actually talked about splitting atoms right yeah. that goes back yeah. mm-hmm. right to the to the time of the uh, second world war when people actually were in mm-hmm. the process learning how to actually split atoms um how the uh, uh uranium for example the radioactive form of uranium could actually split up spontaneously fission so to speak mm-hmm. the uh, but yeah the idea that it was uh, really indivisible that does go back right to the Greeks yeah, the, yeah. Uh, and uh, and in a certain sense atoms are pretty hard to split okay so you could actually say well okay these actually look kind of into uh, the indivisible at some energy level mm-hmm. the, uh, at the energy level that which we actually work at or live mm-hmm. in they, uh, they really are pretty indivisible
0: so you also mentioned that there were some people all the way until the 19th century that still did not really believe or take into the fact that, you know, things could be made up of particles or they weren't truly the whole atom. So I guess if they didn't believe that things were, because I guess like you see in a, like a block of wood, you, I guess you think, well, what is the smallest thing that you can cut at, cut into it? So what is the other ideas that people had? Because I'm Just thinking c- like... Continuity? No, but if you but you have yeah. to think that there's something in there right do you not do they just not believe that that's yeah. true well
2: uh, they didn't necessarily they uh, not believe that things were made up of smaller objects but they didn't actually believe in this idea that in fact there were uh, small particles indivisible particles the, uh that uh, in fact were the the fundamental the uh, underlying structure uh, there were a number of ideas there was sort of this plum pudding model where an atom was made up of sort of a jelly or the uh, was uh, individual sort of objects inside it Uh, the uh, and there were a few other wilder ideas but just to give you some perspective on it uh, you know the chemistry building at university of toronto yeah Mm -hmm. it's called lash miller yeah lash miller was a chemist who did not believe in the atomic theory
0: Wow, oh, <laughs> okay. that's interesting. All
2: right, okay, oh, that yeah. is really interesting, right? <laughs> okay, yeah. so there's the history there. In fact, there are a lot of stories about how he actually was so opposed to the idea of the atom or the atomic theory that he actually went around, hur- he actually uh, sabotaged people's talks, the uh, who were actually giving. The, uh, talking about atoms anyway why is our building named guy. after this
0: guy if he's clearly not a good guy <laughs> or he? <is> well <laughs> yeah. he actually
2: was a pretty good chemist as a. okay out. so he has made okay. some okay okay
1: still respectable, <laughs> but, still, respectable yeah. still respectable i also i find it yeah. funny how like when a scientist has his school of thought and there's another group that doesn't think like he does they always try to convince each other but sometimes that's just very counterproductive where you know one idea may be right, the other may be wrong, but, you know, you try to convince the other that your idea is right, but sometimes it's not, and you're just delaying mm-hmm. the progression of science. But I think a lot of the time, I think a lot of, the, sorry to cut you off, but I
0: think I think a lot of the time uh, is just collaboration, you know, it's not really yeah. like convincing, it's just, I'm trying to put my my perspective of this argument, you put your perspective of this argument and let's see which one makes more sense. Yeah, but I, I guess I'm trying to yeah. say
1: like the the, yeah. the thing that's the negative part is closed-mindedness, right? You, you're mm. not willing yeah. to accept. People should. Yeah, exactly. I guess that
0: yeah. that property of Lash Miller is not not, well, not to be redeemed.
2: Yeah, but you know, but the, there's there's actually a lot of philosophy of science here that uh, comes into play. Um, so there's this whole. Um, idea of scientific revolutions that was actually made popular in the 1960s. The, uh, a couple of key, key uh, uh, philosophers, really, or historians of science, who actually put forward the idea that, in fact, you had revolutions in science, that revolutions were the place where, in fact, you had a bunch of observations that come together and no longer were consistent with what we actually understood, or the prevailing theory. And those facts those observations, ultimately actually put the, the original theory into crisis, the, uh, where, in fact, people now began to realize that they didn't understand something. And maybe they needed to modify the theory, or maybe they just needed to throw it out wholesale. And, uh, and this idea of scientific revolution, the, uh, actually, you ended up having to have a process by which uh, then a new theory evolved or a new model evolved, and and the and the question of how that happened was in fact exactly the the the, you know, the the process you just described, where people actually argued with others about what was right or what was more right in terms mm-hmm. of understanding things. And uh, the term that was used was that uh, a new theory, a new evolved and became the became the thing. The when you had a group of ardent adherents. That's the term that was used. You know, people who just believed that what they had now was a model that was better than whatever had been before. And they argued and they brought more facts together. And the new theory had to predict stuff that the old one didn't. And you could go out and you can test that new theory. And if the test succeeded, uh, you increased the confidence Mm -hmm. that, in fact, this new model was better. But these ardent adherents were the ones who actually made the case. And those are the people who argued the most strongly for something new. Mm-hmm. The, uh, and, and they're the ones who then led the revolution in some sense.
0: Yeah, because, mm-hmm. and, uh, and continuing on this point, we have in, the, in, a, in episode 61, just we just recorded it. We were talking about Albert Einstein and Niels Bohr and their yeah, relationship. The quantum and stuff,
1: revolution. The
0: quantum revolution. And, yeah. they were, and a very big part of that discussion, that relationship between Einstein and Bohr was communication. In the Slovay Conference, with their repeated, repeated arguments against one another, we wouldn't have, or maybe not wouldn't, but quantum theory wouldn't be what it is today without those, without those arguments. Without True. Einstein questioning how quantum mechanics can make... because to be honest, I don't think anyone can really think of questions like Albert Einstein can. So if he can ask a question, and he's wrong, like and Niels Bohr gives an answer. That, that that means we have a very good reason to believe quantum mechanics you know or at least or at least a reason yep. to understand it so that communication right. is again what that allows right just yep. that yep. yeah yeah it's, a, it.
2: it's it is a tension that takes place mm-hmm. and eventually the tension causes something to break
0: yeah the, uh, exactly and, exactly
2: uh, because one of the things about physics and mathematics and a few other of these of these sort of uh, subjects is that they've actually developed a practice of looking for the best model. And it's the best model that wins out. The other Mm -hmm. models, they get put into the trash can, and people forget about them. Now, that's, that's somewhat unique to physical science. Because if you go to the social sciences, for example, or the humanities, you actually find that people work simultaneously with different theoretical ideas. You know they, you know, you actually have people who will, in a paper, they'll say, well, let's theorize around these observations, and let's look at it from this perspective, let's look at it from that perspective. They don't actually argue that one of those two perspectives is better than the other, but rather, those are the, uh, in some sense, truths. Both of them are true, or all, all, of the theory they're actually looking at are true at some level. This, physicists don't like to work that way mm-hmm. they just don't they, they you know they want to they think that there should be one you know the one that right. uh, they should actually be following at any one time
1: very very unique uh, physicist for sure <laughs> yeah and and theories at the end of the day are just approximations for what really is and so, if one approximation is better than the other, then we'll tend to flock to the better <laughs> one because it just, just it, it, it does our like our job is to describe it better. And so, if we can get closer to the the truth, then that's where we go, right? We we don't tend to stick around the the worse versions, I guess. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and it you know there is something actually pretty fundamental also about that practice, because what it does do is that. For a theory to actually be successful, not only does it have to be able to describe everything you currently know, but it has to be predictive. It has to be Mm -hmm. able to actually put forward prediction that you can then test. Theories that don't do that are dead theories, right, because they don't Mm -hmm. actually allow you to go further. And, and that's one of the sort of fundamentals of, uh, you know, physical science where, you know, the theoretical ideas are what push forward your understanding and and then prompt you to ask particular types of questions, which then allow you to further develop and understand what's going on until you come to a crisis where all of a sudden the theory no longer is able to describe what you're actually observing. And now you realize, ah. Oh, this approximation, I've come to the, you know, the boundary of where it's valid. Mm-hmm. And now I actually have to go to this this other theory or this uh, mm-hmm. another model, right, that, mm-hmm. uh, Parker, you actually talked about.
0: Yeah.
1: yeah. Yeah, and one of my favorite things about general relativity is actually the fact that it predicted that black holes existed and only, like, recently in my lifetime, they were actually confirmed with hard proof like here is the picture of the black hole and then you know einstein's not around to to see it but it's such a great realization of you know how amazing the theory mm-hmm. really is yeah theories can be powerful man very
0: powerful yeah. truly and, yeah. we're, and, and, and i mean <laughs> we're seeing it and i think and i think now i can ask because we've been you know discussing about matter and theories of matter now how did the whole anti matter argument come into play like how did be P- I mean even though it's quite it's quite an interesting topic to talk about and we will obviously but how did we even think about there being an anti whatever we see like how right. was that process what was that process
2: so that process actually uh, developed in the late 1920s early 1930s and in fact the theoretical idea came forward first and then the observations. That uh, the antimatter existed. So uh, you have to go back to Dirac, Paul Dirac, the, um, who the, uh, was this uh, really this uh, this great mathematical physicist, and he was trying to develop a quantum theory that was consistent with special relativity. Okay, special relativity was agreed that it actually was real. You know, been around now for several decades. Quantum mechanics was only starting to develop right? This is 1928, 1929. But Dirac actually started working on this idea of, well, how can you have a quantum theory that actually also agrees with special relativity, that incorporates special relativity? So he worked very hard on coming up with a set of equations, which are basically extensions of the Schrodinger equation, as we now know today. The, uh, or alternatively, the equation he developed, the Dirac equation, the Schrödinger equation is an approximation to it in the sort of non-relativistic realm. Mm. Well, I, I so don't know it, that. Okay. So his his the what he discovered when he actually put together the mathematics was that, in fact, he his theory predicted not only positive energy states but negative energy states. And that was actually a real puzzle. And in fact, it was seen as a failure of this theory, because what is a negative energy state? It doesn't make any sense. uh, But he then proposed that, well, maybe there are some ghost particles that are associated with those negative energy states. And in fact, what he realized was that if he actually thought of them as opposite in charge and opposite in all the quantum p- properties, they were you could you could actually think of them as actually real states, real energy states of a particle that was opposite to the ordinary particles. That was what that was the idea. This was like in the early 30s. It was about a year and a half later that people actually observed an anti-electron. The uh, and this that. was, they they did that because it actually comes out the uh, in a radioactive decay, you actually get a particle which is in fact the uh, not negatively charged, but positively charged with the same mass of an electron. So the discovery of the positron took place after the theoretical idea came up, and that was then you know the the uh, there had been this prediction by Dirac. The anti-electron or positron was discovered, and people then believed. Right? People wow. actually realized that the Dirac theory was in fact had to be had to have some valid uh, validity to it, and people started calculating with it, and they saw that it was very successful in predicting uh, phenomena. Yeah, and that's exactly the the theory or the equation that we use for all of our relativistic, all of our calculations in particle physics nowadays. It really wow. starts from the Dirac equation as opposed to the Schrodinger equation. Mm-hmm. The, uh, mm-hmm. it, uh, mm-hmm. So that's how we actually learned about anti-matter first. And, uh, and then eventually we actually discovered antiprotons. The, uh, but that took actually quite a bit longer because you had to create them. It was, they were not generated naturally the, uh, in the uh, nature. Uh, and you can understand that to a certain extent because there wasn't a radioactive process that mm-hmm. created antiprotons. There was one that created antielectrons. The, uh, so you had to find a way of, of putting enough energy together to create an antiproton for nature to create it by having enough energy density.
0: And so, were they all able to do this in like particle accelerators or was it before that?
2: Uh, it
0: was with, uh, it was particle accelerators. So particle accelerators is what, is, is when we saw our first anti-proton. Right. Basically. Correct. Ah, okay. Okay. Mm, wow. The, uh, the anti-proton. That'd be so cool. Yeah, and the, I was, Parker has, and I, I mean, I want, I want Parker to say it, because uh, we were talking about it the other day. I know. I, I was, was about to really ask. He has this really cool theory that I want you to listen to, and I just want to hear
1: what you think Wait, about it. Actually... Uh, or I it's think a we're famous thinking theory. about different things but anyways no. okay so <laughs> i was reading i was reading qed yeah, by richard okay, feynman one, yeah. where he talks about you know the feynman diagram and all that and so it's like you have you have space and time on on the two axes and you can describe like an interaction where you have an electron positron pair annihilating into some other like a photon. photon or something like that yeah photon okay but I, didn't, I don't know if I like, understand exactly what is meant to happen here, but you, there was an arrow, right? An arrow in the electron pointing towards the annihilation, and then the arrow for the positron was pointing away. And Correct. so, in my head, I was thinking that the positron is the electron going back in time. Because you go along the time axis, but the arrows pointing in the other direction. But right. I don't know. That was just what I was thinking. <laughs> uh, well, in fact, it's convention
2: that you actually think of the um, you actually put an- in a Feynman diagram. You put all the antiparticles going in the opposite direction to the way that they would go if they were anti if they were the normal particle. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it actually is very nice to see because, in fact. When you have that kind of a, a, a decay vertex, the, um, it, um, what, what really is going on is that you have a particle coming in, you have an antiparticle coming in, they annihilate, and so you have a photon. But if you look at it a different way, you have an electron coming in, and you right. have now the and, and the positron going out. Now, if you turn that diagram
1: yeah, by ninety like degrees, an emission,
2: right? Yeah. Right. Then, then you actually have an electron coming in, is emitting a photon and continuing.
1: Right, because of the change of momentum of the yes, by emitting exactly. the photon. Yeah, exactly. That's what was so interesting about it is that in one way it's it's a it's a a pair annihilating, and in another way it's an emission with a change of momentum. <laughs> Correct. correct so cool <laughs> and
2: both of those and both of those are described by exactly the same phenomenon and the same strengths of interaction yeah. so the feynman diagram allows us to in a in a very systematic way identify the interactions because each of those vertices the place where the electron and positron come together and to annihilate we call that a vertex and there is a strength to that vertex And that's actually predicted by the, or the strength is actually an element of the Dirac theory. And so you can actually go and measure that process and actually know what the coupling is. That's the coupling at the vertex. And and there are a set of rules for how you actually Mm. calculate. Once you know the coupling, a set of rules for how you actually calculate the the actual quantum amplitude associated with that. And miraculously or not, but it all works out exactly the way that you expect. And and this is actually one of the, perhaps the, the most tested physical theory we've ever had. We've, we're testing it to the level of over nine decimal places. Wow. Making predictions
1: yeah, with
2: that degree of accuracy and we're able to measure sync with that degree of accuracy
0: and it works. Mm. Right? Wow. So, so we don't okay. have positrons moving backwards in time. <laughs> well,
2: we we don't in that sense, uh, yeah. we have them moving forward,, yeah, but it's course. equivalent to an electron moving backward in time. That's the point. It's equivalent mm-hmm. to an electron moving backward in time.
1: And I, I don't know if this is sorry I don't know if this is related in any way, but this reminds me of like having a, a current of electrons going one way is the same as having uh, like um, like positive particles moving in the other direction. When Mike you're holes. talking about electrodynamics, yeah.
2: Yeah. Um, it has some analogies to it, but the the relationship between matter and antimatter is, in fact, quite specific. Whereas some of the other things that you actually have, for example, um, electrons moving in one direction and you could actually think of a current going in another, those are, in fact, properties of charges that are flowing and that are moving. The, uh, and they're not really about the fundamental nature of matter and the existence of antimatter. So, mm. um, that when it's important to keep these things separate and in their own compartments in a certain sense because they really are driven by a completely different physical phenomenon.
1: Right. I was just reminded of that idea of like moving backwards is the opposite of the other moving forward but yeah also because it's like kind of convention that we have electrons moving one way and current moving the other and
0: saying that current is positive a, technically it's just i think a lot of it is just convention because yeah that's just how it is like you know those uh, those memes or those jokes where like if if electrons and current move in the same direction and we have like a futuristic futuristic <laughs> world like you know like jokes like that like it's just yeah. I, I think a, a lot of it is just convention and, right. I mean, n- now that we're talking so much about antimatter, I have to ask, and obviously no one knows, but what's the deal with baryon asymmetry? Basically, the theory that matter and antimatter aren't, or not theory, but the fact that they aren't equal in the universe. Like, is there yeah. anything now that we know that maybe would, like, you know, enlighten that question for us, like, a little bit? Yeah.
2: So the, so there are,
0: uh, there is, in fact, one very standard
2: theory now that would explain why we actually have this asymmetry. The, uh, and this actually goes back to the early universe the, uh, and what we call inflation. Right? Mm-hmm. There is this model where very, very early on, the universe was very, very tiny. Uh, it, was in a quant- it was in a very specific quantum state. And then all of a sudden there was a phase change. And that in that phase change, uh, there was a non-equilibrium process where all of a sudden the universe grew very, very rapidly, in this sort of non-equilibrium state. The, uh, and there were the, there were interactions between the particles that were not the uh, that had an asymmetry in them. The, uh, where charge parity wasn't conserved. Okay. The, uh, as a as a symmetry. And that combination of a very rapid change, non-equilibrium plus having this, the uh, charge party, this charge parity asymmetry, would lead you to the prediction that, that in fact you would actually have a change of from uh, equal number of the matter and antimatter particles to a large asymmetry.
0: Sorry, 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 but maybe you just want to briefly explain like charge parity because we've heard and spoken about parity symmetry a lot, but never actually had an explanation. So maybe you want to do like just a quick, brief thing before you get back on track on charge parity symmetry and why this asymmetry is big is a big deal. Yeah. So charge
2: symmetry means that you know a a positive charge will always remain a positive charge, and we actually have seen that we don't have any evidence that charge. Uh, they're the they the failure of the, the symmetry of charge. The uh, charge seems to be really preserved. Parity is in fact the for every particle they have a very specific parity, either positive or negative parity. The um, and and you can think of it as actually the whether in fact it's a uh, the left or right handed in terms of its behavior. The, okay. Uh, now, so, and parity itself appears to be preserved. But the product of charge and parity isn't conserved. In fact, there are some processes in nature where, in fact, the, this charge parity is violated maximally. In other words, that one process can't happen, but the other can. The, mm. um, and this was actually discovered back in the late 1950s. The um, won a Nobel Prize, because it was something that was just completely not anticipated. But, but charge parity is not a true symmetry of nature. The, um, and so we actually see this, what we call CP violation effects, take place in a lot of different systems. The, uh, and, and the one that, in fact, we see it most very clearly was in the interaction of neutrinos and charged leptons. The, uh, there you actually see that in fact everything has to be left-handed. Everything has to be left-handed. So, so it just means that the uh, there is no right-handed interaction that can take place. The, uh, so that's actually the violation of charge, the CP violation, uh, maximally mm-hmm. as we talk about it. But then, it, but there are other particles like quarks, like the bottom quark. That appears that it doesn't actually use the uh, conserved CP uh, the charge parity the uh, and it was ex- and the dis- the discovery of that the uh, and that bottom quarks can turn into anti bottom quarks that's basically what CP violation really means the uh, you end up then being able to use that as a way of predicting that in fact you had this asymmetry could have this asymmetry in the early universe that with inflation would actually the uh, result in this baryon asymmetry. And you only needed a small change because if you think about it, when the universe cools, if you have a small change in the small asymmetry between baryons and antibaryons, the baryons and antibaryons essentially annihilate each other and turn into photons. But if you have an asymmetry, you're just left with then a small excess of baryons. And that's exactly what we see. The universe is filled with photons and there's a very small amount of baryons that make up ordinary matter, the protons, the neutrons. The, that's what our universe is like. It's basically, if you, most of it, almost all of it is just photons.
0: So, wow. So hmm. we actually almost do have a theory for understanding baryon asymmetry.
2: We do. Except, so is this a
0: theory or is this like basically this is what happened? No, I it's, it's yeah. still a theory. Yeah, it's, it's still a theory, theory. right?
2: Okay. A, first, we weren't there. Mm-hmm. Okay. So let's actually be clear: we weren't there at the, at the <laughs> point of the immediate the, of after the big
0: bang. <laughs> of course, right? <laughs> we don't it's know. Good.
2: We don't yeah. know. The um, but actually, more importantly, we don't know that there isn't actually a particular process, CP violation process, CP violating process that's strong enough to actually give us the amount of CP violation we need to make the big inflationary model work. We have evidence that there are processes that do violate the, the um, charge parity, but having one that's strong enough is still an open question. Now, with the discovery that neutrinos have mass, that opens up the possibility that in fact, all of this asymmetry took place not in the baryon sector around quark, but with the lepton sector. The uh, between okay. leptons and ne- between the charged and neutral leptons. Uh-huh. The uh, so so that's an idea. It's another theoretical framing of it. The uh, that could actually get around the fact that the among the quarks we don't seem to have enough CP violation to actually explain what took place in the early universe. The mm-hmm. uh, but a lot of the data is so consistent with this model. That it's hard to get away from it. No one has come up with a better model, mm-hmm. the, uh, for describing. So that's yeah. why we're that's why we're stuck with it for the moment. But you know there are these questions, um, and by the way, it doesn't explain dark matter.
1: Yeah, that's that's the whole new <laughs> right. great whole new model, right. <laughs> whole new right. model for sure. Yeah. And I, I had a quick question. So we're talking about quarks, and uh, I was wondering if humans started really talking about quarks after they started playing with uh, particle accelerators, or were they theorized before and then confirmed afterwards?
2: Uh, so particle accelerators were already invented back in the 1930s. You have to go back to Lawrence, the uh, who was actually building the first cyclotron. And those first cyclotrons were very small. They were kind of, you know, they could hold one in your hand. The... Um, but he actually demonstrated that you can actually accelerate particles in this little, very well-machined copper device the, uh, that was given the name cyclotron. The, uh, and so he then went off and started building bigger and bigger ones, the, uh, along with other people. But he was the one who was sort of in the lead. And it was all being happening at Berkeley. The, um, and so now we have the Berkeley Lab, or Lawrence Berkeley National Lab, the, uh, that... The, uh, is in fact the place where the cyclotron really was developed. So by the time we got to the 1950s, we actually had energetic enough, the uh, cyclotrons, that you could actually now start producing other types of particles that we hadn't observed before. And so there were these strange particles that decayed. And they decayed in funny ways, so they were actually called strange particles. K mesons were the first mm-hmm. ones that were discovered. Uh, and there were funny properties to them. So you had, at that point, protons and neutrons that looked almost identical, right? Almost the same mass. One was charged, one was neutral. They actually all were found in, neut- in the nucleus. The, um, so, so that was one puzzle. The other puzzle was these strange particles that were produced. The, um and at the same time, they, one was able to produce other forms of particles like the baryons, like the proton and neutron, but that were heavier and decayed. Okay. So that was a picture that we had in the late 19, uh, 1950s. And so a, a number of theorists were trying to figure what, what could explain all this. And that's when the quark model was developed in the early 1960s. It was two people, actually, who were sort of working somewhat independently, Zweig and Jaman. Uh, who actually developed this idea of a quark model, and uh, Gelman and Zweig, the, uh showed that in fact it would describe most of these things. Uh, didn't actually give everything together, but it but it gave a way of actually uh, predicting which particles you might exist that might exist you could find, um, and that was actually the beginning, where in fact these ideas of quarks emerged and. And you needed three types of quarks, an up quark, a down quark, and a strange quark. And you could explain at that point everything that we had seen so far.
1: Hmm. That's what we needed. That's what we needed. And back in the day when they were just seeing like, oh, we have these heavier protons and lighter protons that decay and all that stuff, we're talking about very, very small masses. So how are you actually able to distinguish between small and very small and very, very small
2: so at that point, we'd had no idea what the masses of quarks were. We knew what the mass of the protons and neutrons were. We knew what the masses of electrons were. Electrons seemed to be about 2,000 times lighter than protons. But we had another particle, which was a cousin to the electron, a muon. And the muon was, you know, the uh, approximately 250 times heavier than an electron. So kind of midway between protons and electrons. Mm-hmm. The uh, and um, so the, the challenge at that time was to actually understand when you talk about quarks, um, how would they be able to predict or explain the masses of the particles you did observe? Uh, and, the, uh, and there was no easy way of doing that. Because if you actually took, you know, the proton and neutron, we thought were made up of three different quarks. So that would suggest that a quark had a mass of maybe a third of a proton or a neutron. But mm-hmm. then you had particles called pions, which are only about 15% of the weight of a proton and neutron, and seem to be made up of a quark and an antiquark. Mm-hmm. Well, so
0: how did that work? I was just gonna the, ask uh, you a question on mesons, or because yeah. it, it's the concept of a quark and an antiquark in a, in a, in a. In a yeah like wrapped up in a particle. So which I was wondering, how can that exist?
2: Right. So they, you know, so it's it's a bit like a, an atom itself had electrons surrounding a nucleus. And so the electrons are bound to the nucleus. If you think of the nucleus, the proton, the neutrons are bound together. Mm-hmm. So what, so, and we actually talk about the nucleus as being bound together by the strong force, you know, the nucleon, the proton, the neutrons. Being held together by the strong force, and the electron is held to, to bound to the uh, nucleus by the electromagnetic force. So this idea of the strong force was then extended to actually taught, to be used to actually describe how quarks and antiquarks bound together. Mm-hmm. Now, if you were to the, the solution to this this puzzle of what the mass of quarks was was the recognition that, in fact, the mass of a particle was not simply given by the mass of the constituents, but by the energy that was actually associated with the interaction of the quarks and antiquarks inside the, inside the object. And that determined the mass of the particles, not the cons- masses of the constituents,
1: Mm
0: -hmm. Because a big realization, I believe, was especially after special relativity and everything they found out or not found out, but I guess they calculated that most of the mass of anything does not actually come from these these quarks, but it's the strong nuclear force. It's the it's the energy that's holding these quarks together where most of the mass of the particle they're coming from, which was kind of surprising. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so, yeah. So we've spoken about matter and understanding matter, antimatter. We've spoken about the fermions, the leptons, understanding particles. One thing we haven't got into, even though we have alluded to it, are force-carrying particles, or bosons. So bosons are also a very important part of the standard model, what we call force-carrying particles. And the ones we know now, we have the strong nuclear force, the weak nuclear force, the electromagnetic, and the gravitational. Right. The strong is... uh, And they're all... Are they're all carried by different particles. So maybe we want to get a little bit into how did we think about, again, particles, I guess, now that we've already got through that explanation, we can think about an object and, well, what's smaller than that? But when we think about these force-carrying particles, what's our logic there? What's How do we get to that?
2: Well, so this comes back to uh, really the fundamentals of quantum mechanics and, and the prediction that had been developed through the development of quantum electrodynamics, that the carrier of the electromagnetic force could be understood as a photon. Okay, so that, in fact, was the first boson, spin 1 particle. The, uh, that uh, By the way, it doesn't have to be spin 1. It just has to be an, an integer spin, spin 0, spin 1, spin 2, so on. The, uh, so a photon at spin 1, and it, when you actually calculated, using the Dirac equation, the behavior of the electromagnetic force, you found that, in fact, it, it described exactly the behavior of, electro, of electromagnetism. The elect, that's why we call it quantum electrodynamics. The, uh, taking into account special relativity, you can describe all of the behavior of electromagnetism by introducing this idea that there was a force carrier, a photon, with very specific properties. You know the photon connects particles with charge, does not mm-hmm. actually interact with neutral particles. So you needed an electric charge around to be able to have
0: photons interacting. The, uh, when you say carrying force, like force carrying particles, like I'm just trying yeah. to like apply intuition. because okay. guess I'm not really deeply yeah. thinking into it. Like what is that? really mean well so it's not really
2: carrying a force. yeah what it is is
0: its behavior actually is
2: responsible for what we call the force
0: you know we actually talk about
2: force of being uh, newton's laws you know f equals ma Mm -hmm. well actually force is a theoretical concept we don't see force right we don't see a thing called f what we actually see are the acceleration of particles Right? We, well, that's all we see. That's all we see. We only see acceleration. So we infer from that that there's a force. That wasn't Newton's idea, the, uh, or an idea of several others, but Newton was the one who put it into a nice framework of three laws. The, uh, but the idea is that you can actually explain the acceleration of particles by introducing this idea of force. Okay. Now, so, but it's but it purely a theoretical idea. Again, you don't see a force. You don't see a force field. You just see the acceleration of particles. Okay. So when we actually then get to now quantum electrodynamics, what you're actually seeing are the uh, the interaction of charged particles, and they accelerate. They either attract each other if they're an opposite in charge, or they repel each other. And what we're actually t- really saying when we talk about photons as carrying the force, it's actually the exchange of photons between these two charged particles that actually results in a net force. The uh, You know, we actually already talked about the fact that if you took that annihilation diagram of electron, positron, and a photon, you turned it 90 degrees, you now had an electron emitting a photon and actually its momentum being a, being the changed because of momentum conservation. Well, that particular picture, you have to now think of it happening an infinite, almost an infinite number of times. There's not just one photon, but it's a bunch of photons. Mm-hmm. And they're interacting. And when you actually calculate the net effect of all that, you find that, in fact, you get, a for charged particles that are opposite in charge, you get an interaction which is repulsive. And for particles that are opposite in electric charge, you have an interaction that's, that's in fact, attractive. And that's actually how we think about that's why the idea that we we talk about photons as quote carrying the electromagnetic force, but it's really the interaction of photons with the charge carrying force of uh, charge charged particles that actually result in their acceleration, the uh, and what we now call the the fo- electromagnetic force.
0: Wow! Wow. <laughs> wow! That was a whole new That's- definition of force. Wow!
2: Yeah. <laughs> And so when we talk about the strong force, we're actually also talking about the fact that protons and neutrons are accelerated toward each other. uh, And and that's what we actually then infer as the strong force. And so when you actually think about the strong force carriers, which we call gluons, they have to have special properties that they can actually keep protons and neutrons bound together. If you had two protons close to each other, even though they're positively charged and the electromagnetic force will want to push them away, the strong force is stronger and pulls them together, causes them to accelerate toward each other. Mm-hmm. But one of the properties of the strong force is that if you get far enough away, it, it vanishes much more rapidly than the electromagnetic force. So it's what we actually recognize as not being a long-range force. It's, in fact, mm-hmm. a short-range force. And only acts in the sort of the uh, the distance scale of what we see as an, as an atom, atomic nucleus. Sorry, about and you know, sorry. Yeah, are park the park are here.
1: the gluons in this case the force-carrying particles for the strong nuclear force? Yes. Okay. Right.
2: And there are eight of them.
1: Oh wow! There are okay. now
2: eight of them. The um, and those eight are needed. To be able to explain all these funny features of the of the strong force, Where the electromagnetic force we only needed one,
1: mm-hmm.
2: one mm-hmm. photon, but we have eight different kinds of gluons, the uh, that mm-hmm. actually are needed to describe the strong force.
1: So what's an example of like a funny feature that we need different types of gluons to explain?
2: Well, so the one I already mentioned the fact that the gluon, if you only had one gluon, then the force would actually by virtue of the interaction would be long range. Mm. And we know the strong force is not. So we have to build it up so that in fact over a particular range, that force can be very strong. The, um, and then it actually dissipates. It drops off. The, um, the other factor is that the um, when we actually have particles that are very close to each other, that force drops off. So you have this property that, in fact, we have what we call asymptotic freedom, where if the quarks, for example, get close enough together, then they don't feel a the force. They're sort of free, and they're in a, like a bag, where the size of the bag is determined by when the strong force turns on. The, uh, and inside the bag, they're actually just freely moving. Now this factor of the fact that the strong force then disappears when you get to out to very large distances is because it only acts on particles that we say have the quantum number called color. The, uh, so when you get far enough away, the object that the photons or the gluons would see becomes colorless. Like mm-hmm. all of the quarks actually have are such that their color balances out so they have zero color. So a proton has zero color. And a neutron has zero color, but the constituents inside don't. They are colored, and that's why when proton the neutron get close enough together, they actually attract each other. Yeah, because of the fact that the strong force actually sees the colored objects inside the proton and neutron.
0: I love that you have colored particles. Yeah.
2: <laughs> so that so that's why you needed these number of. That's why you need these, this plethora of force carriers, to be able to describe all of the features mm-hmm. of the strong force. Now,
0: here mm-hmm. for the oh, yeah, here sure. for the big one. What about gravity, though? What is your opinion on gravity? Is it part of the standard model, i.e., is it carried by one of these particles like a graviton, the hypothetical graviton, or do you believe? It is similar to Albert Einstein. Its fundamental nature of space time. Like, what is your take on gravity? Should it should it be should it have a place in the standard model?
2: Well, just to be clear, it's not part of the standard model. Not moment. yet.
0: No. No. Of course. Of course. No. No. Not. Not right the, now. That's the, that's the question. And and, right. the, and
2: and and the graviton is, in that sense, a hypothetical particle.
0: Mm-hmm. Very Completely. totally Completely.
2: hypothetical. We actually have no evidence Whatsoever. that the
0: graviton exists. <laughs> just an idea uh,
2: just an idea we we know that gravity uh, gravity radiates right we have gra- we have radio wave uh, gravity wave, and we didn't and it wasn't simply because we saw that found the you know we we've observed the merger of black holes using very sensitive gravity wave detectors like ligo and virgo the uh but we actually saw pulsars you know to the uh where you had two binary stars Uh, the rotating around each other and causing a radio beacon we actually saw the decay of pulsars and the uh, Taylor and Hulse were the first to observe that and the only way you could understand the change in the rotation rate of these two, this binary system was if they were emitting gravity waves Mm -hmm. and so that was really the discovery that goes back to 1967, 1968 oh, sorry Early seventies, I think, actually, mm-hmm. but anyway. So the point being, though, that we actually saw gravity waves a long time ago, but gravity waves don't tell us that we have gravitons. They aren't. They aren't uh, evidence that the because they're not really says.
0: radiation, right? Like it's not really radiating anything through space. It's space itself that's moving, right? Well, Isn't that can. the whole thing? Uh,
2: but but that's actually the geometric way of describing the okay. uh, the effects of gravity, which. You know, there is nothing that tells us that, in fact, everything has to be a quantum field theory in our world. I guess that's true.
0: So we don't have to quantize everything, basically.
2: We don't have to quantize everything, especially something which is like space-time. The, um, it's, it's not a particle. We're not seeing accelerations of particles. The... Um, uh, as a function of space-time, I guess we are a little bit in the sense that we actually talk about the force of gravity. But in fact, it's the curvature of space-time which is mm-hmm. actually causing it. It's the mm-hmm. distortion of space-time. So I'm not convinced that you actually will find that there is, in fact, a quantum theory of gravity. Okay? Now, that Ooh, may be, for, for for some people, that may be heretical. Yeah, but yeah. the so, However, the smartest minds have actually been trying to pursue this idea because everything else has is, is successfully described by quantum field theory.
0: Interestingly enough, I'm doing a research program this summer, which is trying to prove the quantum theory of gravity. <laughs> Basically, okay. it's, it's kind of doing, it's, it's in that regime. So it's really funny that you mentioned this because I'm just thinking, because yeah. I mean, it's a nice idea. I guess the idea is there, but I guess as of right now, there's no real implementation. There's nothing really that we can say. Yes or no to, like there's a lot more no you know, str- than we can say yes. Yeah,
2: yeah, there are ideas. String theory has been one of the ones that have been most popular for the last thirty years as a as a possible description, right, of gravity in a context where it's quantum field theory, the um, and you can actually do calculations with it. However, it has not yet yielded a a particular prediction that actually we can go and test. They, uh, mm. uh, you can come up with theories that look a lot like what we see around us, they, uh, but it, they're not, they don't then predict a bunch of things that we can actually go and observe, not at a fundamental level. You, can, you have to then add something on top of them to be able to get predictions, and that's, mm. a, and that's a fundamental problem. The, uh, and there are people who are working on that problem and yeah. and some people think they've solved it but i'm 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 still skeptical. I'm, I'm skeptical very skeptical still yeah. okay yeah. but Let's i'm just see. a Let's dumb see. i'm just a dumb theorist what are some experimental we're excited <laughs> we're excited
1: <laughs> yeah can't wait to see what happens but um yeah i wanted to ask you about supersymmetry and maybe for our audience out there, you can give kind of like a brief explanation of super, of supersymmetry. A theory, very much so. <laughs>
2: yeah. So it's an idea that uh, was really developed in the 19... I think its development really started in the 1970s, in fact. But it really took off in the 1980s. And, and the reason that it was... So what it is, it's a theory that basically postulates that for every type of particle we have in the, quote, standard model, all the quarks and leptons, all the bosons, things that we actually talk about caring for, there is a supersymmetric version of each of those types of particles. So for an electron, there is a supersymmetric electron. And most of the time we'll actually talk about them as actually, we just add S to the name. So a supersymmetric electron is a selectron. The uh, supersymmetric quark right is a squark. <laughs> the uh, supersymmetric yeah, lepton scientific is Scientific nomenclature is so funny sometimes. <laughs> okay, but so it's a slepton. Yeah. And, and, the, most of, and the force carriers, we actually add eno to the end. So a supersymmetric photon is a photino. A supersymmetric yeah. W boson, we haven't talked about weak force, but it carried by the W and Z boson, is a weino. W I N O. A supersymmetric good. Z boson is a Xeno, Z I N O. So, mm-hmm. so you have this whole family, you've doubled all of the types of particles that describe the world. Okay. So the so so whole point, why do we do this? Exactly. Right? Well, we actually do this because it then allows us to the uh, explain why. When we actually go to very, very high energies, the, uh, the theory that, that we have doesn't blow up, but rather what it does do is it actually causes all of the part all of the forces we talk about, the electromagnetic force, the strong force and the weak force, to come together and look like a single force. And it's that it's that ability of the supersymmetric theory to predict what happens with the standard model. You go to very high energies that, in fact, makes it attractive, because it it without the supersymmetry, you actually have problems with the current standard model when you go to the very high energy. You have a bunch of sort of problems. Uh, the probably the most famous ones called known as the hierarchy problem, the uh, or fine tuning problem. But the the point is that you have these problems. The standard model isn't complete, in other words. Hmm. And supersymmetry is a way of completing it so that it actually makes sense as you go to higher energies. Okay, so that's the idea of supersymmetry. Uh, and there were predictions made that you should observe supersymmetric particles, you should be able to create them and observe them at high enough energy colliders. The uh, We didn't know what the mass of those supersymmetric particles were, but it kind of made sense that they should have masses which are sort of, of the scale that we work at, you know, GeV or tens of GeV or maybe hundreds of GeV. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the the problem has been we have no evidence of observer, observing supersymmetric particles. Nada, none. We've actually been looking for them yeah, for over 30 years. We have no, zero evidence that supersymmetry right? is a real mob. It is an issue. I've never been a particular fan of supersymmetry. Uh, and for the fundamental reason that what it requires us to do is double the number of particles that are needed to describe the world. That's, you know, I subscribe to Oakham's Razor. Mm-hmm. You know, And Oakham's Razor basically says, you know, if you have two theories, one which is more complicated than the other, pick the simpler one the Classic. simpler one is more likely to be right mm-hmm. and so now this is not quite fair to supersymmetry because there isn't a simpler theory that describes everything true but you have to you have to accept a lot of extra baggage by taking on supersymmetry the uh, in order to get the right answer and that just seems like a pretty costly load to assume
0: so, are so there other theories for this high energy spectrum of the standard model?
2: So, so there are other ideas that floating around. As never, popular as
0: supersymmetry, as, or,
2: no, no, they no, haven't. Really. And there's actually been, and there have been various problems with them. Well, one of them was called technicolor. Okay, okay. that came out okay. in the nineteen eighties. You cool. know, was a, another way of describing what took place at high energies. Turns out that technicolor has been most versions of technicolor have actually been shown to not be consistent with the data we currently have. And there are a whole bunch of versions. There's walking, technicolor, the uh, any event. There's just a different ways of thinking about it, and none of them have actually worked out. Okay, so, so people are still working at trying to find alternate solutions, especially since we haven't observed any evidence for supersymmetry.
0: Mm-hmm. That's a big problem. A problem. Sense. As mm-hmm.
2: Parker said, it's a big problem. You know, yeah. you predict something and you, you, you've been able to wiggle out of it only because you don't know, you don't have a firm prediction as to what the mass of the supersymmetric particles could be. Maybe there are, you know, several TEV in mass and we just haven't built a, a, the energetic enough collider mm-hmm. to be able to produce
0: them. Right, right. So talking about the energetic enough colliders, and we were also saying, you know, we haven't found them so far. I, was, I just really wanted to ask, what do you obviously having worked at CERN for those people that <laughs> haven't uh, got uh, or, or listened to episode four, worked at CERN, what do you think will be or what do you think we can do to build or to amplify the future of particle accelerators? Like what would the future of particle accelerators look like? Best case scenario.
2: Yeah, well... Let me just make the point that particle physics is not simply about building accelerators.
0: Of course, but, but it does allow us to, you know, you know <laughs> gleam into a lot more of reality than yeah. we can with the current world around us, right?
2: Correct, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, I, I, the, um, so the future of particle accelerators is a little bit unclear. Uh, there are ideas for building more energetic ones than what we currently have. The uh, heck, we were going to build a, a very energetic one, a 40 TeV collider, back in the 1980s and early 90s, called the Superconducting Super Collider, and uh, being built in Texas until 1993. The uh, and we had to settle for the LHC, the Large Hadron Collider, which uh, was only designed to go up to 14 TeV. The um, for very practical reasons, we were reusing an existing tunnel,
0: mm-hmm. and
2: the size of the tunnel dictated the energy of the uh, protons that we can put in. So uh, the next stage is to actually build accelerator that use a different technology and accelerate particles, different particles. So for example, uh, the one of the ideas is to build a muon collider and an electron collider, positron, electron-positron collider. Now the muon collider has the potential for going up to much higher energies. The, uh, because, uh, and that's simply because the muon is heavier than the electron, and that means you can accelerate it more easily. The, there are other ideas for building a much more energetic proton-proton collider. The, that's about seven times the energy of the current, the uh, LHC. Um, so there are these ideas, and there are, people are pursuing them, and we're trying to figure out how much it would cost. The, uh, and um, so that, what we call the energy frontier, is sort of pushing along. But it takes generations. You know, if I were to actually go back to my, I've been in the field for doing experiments for 40 years. Now, 40 years ago, if I were to ask the question, what was happening? The high energy frontier was being given by, at Fermilab, where they were building the what they called the Tevatron a collider that would collide proton and antiproton together at 2 TEV. The, uh, so the, and that was just being constructed when I got into the field back in the late 1970s. Um, started doing the first experiments there in 1986. That was I was on that first experiment that I actually started using, the Tevatron, the uh, collider. The, uh, and we worked at that, on that experiment for 25 years. Constantly upgrading the luminosity of the collider, the uh, and actually looking at more the uh, rarer processes. It's how we discovered the top quark, for so
0: example. So the only future of particle accelerators is just increasing the energy, basically. Like and there's the, nothing. And the
2: intensity. And the the, intensity.
0: so so there's so there's no like fundamental difference that we can think like instead of accel. I, I don't know. I guess I guess there's no. I'm just thinking there's, I guess, accelerating it in a circle probably is the most efficient way to do it. But I'm thinking like, so there's no fundamental difference. It's just intensity and energy increasing and we'll be, simply be able to, you know, see more of the universe. Okay. All
1: right. Sorry, I was just going to say, I think we need to see an accelerator that goes around the equator of the earth. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, and there have been, people have actually thrown out the idea of, uh, you know, let's, why don't we build an accelerator in the outer space? the um, it would be huge it would actually allow us to actually <laughs> very expensive accelerate oh, particle uh, would it not yeah. because yeah, like to lift it up there it
0: would, would be. be crazy it would, be. <laughs> it would be. even if they it do it in be. parts like that would be so expensive yeah yeah right. for sure so
2: you know pe- people have been thinking about it but you mm-hmm. know it it is a it is a challenge so um, the but this is ultimately how particle physics particle accelerators have developed people have actually been creative and imaginative they've Sort of thought about how they might be able to build it. They've worked a way at trying to make it less expensive to build, and um, so uh, there are certainly a lot of people working on next generation accelerators. uh, Awesome, but it is only one of the frontiers. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: The um, you have the uh, so you have this what we call the high energy frontier. This has sort of been sort of canonized in a certain sense. We have that. We have the intensity frontier. um, So where you actually are looking at uh, processes that require very intense or very high-rate collisions. uh, You have what we call the precision frontier, where you're trying to make measurements that are increasingly precise that might actually reveal what's going on. um, You could discover supersymmetry that way, for example. Um, And uh, you have the cosmic frontier where you're trying to understand the behavior of the cosmos. This is where we get into dark energy and dark matter. The, uh, mm-hmm. So so you have these different frontiers that all are part of particle physics. The, um, and the uh, so the LHC is only one of the frontiers and arguably a second because it's also increasing its intensity. So That's not good. only are you increasing the energy, but you're also increasing intensity. So it kind of sits within those two frontier or so maximizing
0: front. maximizing all of this all of these frontiers will be the future basically that that's yeah. that's where we're yeah. headed you just, that, push. You just push, to know. push 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 good, yeah. good to know good to know yep. okay so so we have something yep. to look to we have something to look forward exactly. to we're not okay exactly. that's good exactly yeah good. we're that's not good.
2: we're not any dead ends here cool but yeah we that's have always, a that's of always questions nice to hear. yep you know the the standard model is alive and well in that oh. it has some problems we know it's not complete but mm-hmm. it's made predictions, and now we have to sort of understand what, in fact, is really going on. And okay, that's the ways you know we actually talked about, you know, the this this idea of how science moves forward. And uh, and this is, it's 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 what we actually call bread and butter science. Actually, at the moment, it's not revolutions. It's bread, it's and, bread butter.
1: and butter. Nice, yeah. nice. Awesome. <laughs> cool. I think uh, I'm I'm all through, Parker. Yeah, no, it's been it's been a, an awesome conversation. Awesome conversation. Thank you so much yeah, for coming on. You're on
2: welcome. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> it's been my pleasure. And, you know, as you can tell, I enjoy these conversations. Thank Either you. Of the I mean, it, I mean, conversations. it looks like yeah, I think we were having
0: quite a lot of fun when we got into some really cool nitty-gritty particle physics stuff. How, we didn't talk really about dark matter or anything at all this episode. Not really. Well, that's okay, though. I think I think particle physics was the main focus, and I think we did get through basically everything we were wondering about. Like, we got some really cool content. So thank you for that. Thank
1: you for coming yeah. on, for You're
2: sure. Welcome. Right. You're
1: welcome. As always, and, oh, go ahead, go ahead.
2: Oh, no, I was just going to say, you know, I think this series is great. The, uh, <laughs> thank you. and thanks. Thank you. You know, I'm really pleased that you've got up to, what, uh, this is 60? 60... 62.
0: 62. and
2: uh, 62. you know you have over 10,000, close to 10,000 subscribers this is awesome it's awesome, so awesome. Just, keep really yeah. just keep it up yeah. just, just you. keep thank it up thank you thank you so up.
1: much thank you thank awesome. you as always you know we'd love to have you on again for you know another conversation about possibly a different topic um so yeah um other than that okay. i guess we can just end it here so yes, okay. to everybody listening Make sure to follow the podcast. Make sure to leave a comment. Maybe you want us to talk about something next week. We do answer our emails and all that stuff. You can find us on Instagram at math.physics.podcast. And uh, yeah, this has been episode number 62 of the Math and Physics podcast. I'm your host, Parker.
0: And I'm Ray. And we'll see you soon. Bye, guys.